All right, guys. Well, we're talking about spiritual intimacy, life with God. Um, this past Tuesday was my wife's birthday, and so we went to uh, Joe's uh, restaurant in Chicago. And one of the things I like to do when I go out to eat is I like to people watch, you know. Sometimes it drives my wife crazy. Uh, but I like to people watch, and particularly like to watch couples. I like to look at couples. And it inevitably happened here and happened in other places, but it happened here. This is a couple, probably in their 50s, you know, and, and, and they're eating their, their dinner. And you notice this silent, blank sort of stares across the table, you know. And not, there's no words being spoken. And by the way, <laughs> some of y'all sitting there go, well, if you're truly in love, you don't have to say anything. Like, we just know. No, and I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about kind of intimacy where you're like, we don't need to say anything. I'm not talking about that kind of intimacy. Oh, you know, that intimacy is powerful. I'm talking about two people who just drifted apart. You know, people never drift into intimacy. People drift apart. So I like to sit there and I like to play out scenarios. And yes, I do this with my wife <laughs> while I'm eating dinner. I can do two things. And you know, I'm talking to her but also thinking, I wonder what happened to that couple. Isn't the state great, Jenny? Yes, it is. I wonder what happened to that couple. And I'm wondering, maybe it's like some of us. Maybe they just got really busy taking care of their kids. And the busyness of raising a family, they just sort of drifted apart. Maybe like some of us in here, when they got married, they were just beginning their careers. And man, they focused on their careers and needed to establish their careers. And it just kind of consumed their time, effort, and energy. Maybe it was, uh, oh man, I'm guilty of this. Maybe it was that, you know how we take people that we really love and care for for granted? Because they're just there. That's what happened. They just took each other for granted. They just kind of sort of drifted apart. This is relationship 101, but a fundamental element to intimacy is good communication. Would you agree with that? As a pastor, when I get marital counseling, at, within five minutes, I'm asking them, so how's communication? <laughs> this is what always happens. One person goes, it's great, and the other person goes, it stinks. Like, communication problems, yes. Communication issues. And then I'll ask this. I go, um, how, how, how often do you guys really take intentional time out just to be together. Because here's the thing I know about good communication. Good communication, not good communication is actually listening. Really listen. sustained effort listening to the one you love and the one who loves you. When there's no good listening, communication suffers. And when communication suffers, intimacy suffers. And I thought about our relationship with God. And I thought about myself and how often when I got myself into trouble, when I made bad decisions in my life, I got to be honest with y'all, bad decisions in my life, it wasn't because I didn't say enough to God. It wasn't because I didn't talk enough. You know what I'm talking about? Some of us, when we're in need, when we're in trouble, goodness gracious, we are talking nonstop. But when I look at my life and some of the bad decisions, and when I, when I look at it, it wasn't that I didn't talk enough. It was that I didn't what? Listen enough to God. Hey, listen enough. And inevitably the communication suffers. And as a result, intimacy suffers as we sort of drift apart. See, I'm wondering if God was sitting here with you today and God, and God were to talk to you today and God would go, what do you think? How is our relationship? 
I'm wondering, maybe some of us would go, God, we just drifted apart, didn't we? It wasn't that one bad decision or sin. It was just kind of, we just kind of drifted apart. See, guys, what we're going to talk about today and next week is, is so practical, so common sense that I told the 9 o'clock service, I struggled, I struggled preparing for it. And, and what do you know? It was very helpful for people after. And I just wanted to go, isn't this common sense? So we began this journey talking about intimacy and how intimacy is being fully accepted and fully loved without fear of rejection, being fully known, and that every single one of us has this yearning in our hearts. And last week, we covered something very, very important. We talked about and addressed the issue of insecurity and how we feel insecure with God because we're insecure about where we stand with him that will affect intimacy. And we talked about essentially three verses in Romans, uh, in 1 Corinthians, that talked about how we overestimate or underestimate the significance of what happened at the cross, and we overestimate the significance of our personal acts of righteousness. That when it comes to intimacy with God and acceptance, our full assurance of God's love for us, we struggle because we make a way bigger deal about what we actually do, and we minimize what Christ did at the cross. Can I tell you something? It was so powerful. I was talking to somebody in our church this week, and, 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 and he goes, Peter, you know, you know why we struggle? with that. I go, why? He goes, we just need to get over ourselves. He said, we just need to get over ourselves. We just need to get over the fact that we think, we think way too much about ourselves. In every area of our lives, way too much of ourselves. When we think about what intimacy with God means in terms of what we do to be accepted by God, what we do to be received by God, what we do to be unconditionally loved by God. And he just said, we need to get over. I thought, you know, that's really good. We just need to get over ourselves. God has done everything, Paul says, in making us a new creation. The change needs to be so fundamental for us to be reconciled with God that it wasn't just about changing our belief system or changing our behavior, but God fundamentally had to change the inside of who we are to make us reconciled to God. And it's believing in that. And we realize that we are unconditionally loved. Now, as we talk about intimacy today, you guys, we talk about intentionally taking time out. I want you to know very clearly what I'm going to talk to you about has nothing to do with what God loves you. Goodness gracious. For some of us, when somebody talks about devotions or prayer, we immediately go, to, if I don't do that, then God doesn't love me. If I don't do that, well, then God doesn't reject Like, just the reason why we spend four weeks talking about what God has done is for us to realize that there is nothing that we can do and that God pursues intimacy with us because of his grace and love. Amen? That there's not a single thing that I'll talk about today and next week that dictates whether God loves you or doesn't love you or how he feels about you. Nothing. All it does is make it easier for us to communicate, to be intimate with him. That's all. Now, having said that, here's something that I noticed happen in our church. People who come to our church, whether they were non-Christian or kind of grew up in a really legalistic home or church that didn't talk about the gospel, they'll come to our church and they'll experience this almost rebirth, renewal experience because they hear the gospel being preached and thought they see the gospel. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes? Yes? Okay. And they just go, yes! And they grow spiritually and there's a sense of I'm alive. I could and then here's what happens inevitably. After three, four years, They hit this wall or plateau. And some people even do the whole, you know what, I'm just not growing at this church anymore. And they go to another church. Here's what I've seen and what we find in Scripture. You ready? At some point, you and I have to take ownership and be responsible for our own spiritual growth. Can I get an amen? 
At some point, we need to take ownership of the fact that nobody can do this for us. And you're going, but you talk about community all the time. Yes, community is essential. Community is critical. But it's kind of like losing weight or getting in better shape. If you want to lose weight and get in better shape, you got to eat better. You got to exercise. You got to sleep enough. And the list goes on. Question, can anybody do that for you? But it's heck of a lot easier if you have a community of friends who encourage you, who walk beside you, who cheer you on, who say, one pound, that's awesome. It's heck of a lot easier. Same thing with spiritual life and spiritual growth. Community can't, community is not ultimately going to be the factor that's going to cause you to grow. Only you can be responsible for that. Here's the thing that I'm afraid of. You ready? I'm afraid that some of you guys think you're growing when you're at a new church when all that is is a new environment. I can't tell you how many college students that have come to our church. I was heavily involved in university and blah, blah, blah. And then when I graduated, I just fell off the cliff and here I am three, four years back. And when I hear their story, you know what I hear? They live vicariously off of an environment of that college fellowship and never said, I'm responsible for my growth. I am telling you, you are at our church, and you're going, I feel alive, breath of fresh air, the gospel. At some point, if you do not take ownership for your growth, you're going to hit a wall. No church on the face of the earth can do for you what only you can do. Do you know who got this? Jesus. Hello? Jesus understood this. Can you believe that? Jesus, the Son of God, understood this dynamic of being alone with the Father, spiritual disciplines of prayer, meditation on the Word. I mean, we're going to talk about this in, 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 in a little bit more next week, but, but if you want to find an example of someone who got this, understand it was Jesus. With, and, and think about this, Jesus, with all that power, all that authority, all the resources at his disposal, we see Jesus throughout the Gospels Going away to a solitary place to be alone with the Father. Jesus making it a priority to be with God. And think about, if anybody didn't need to, <laughs> you know what I mean? If I didn't need to, it was Jesus. Jesus didn't need to. And yet, he makes it a priority to be alone with the Father. And check, practicing the classical spiritual disciplines that some of us are like, Bible reading, uh, prayer, good Lord. All right. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to look at snapshots of the Gospels, okay? We're gonna, and we, last week, we spent the entire time on three verses. Today, we're going to look at snapshots of the Gospels, okay? Snapshots of the Gospels of how Jesus makes it a priority. Carve out alone time with his Father. And we're going to dig deeper into those alone times and see why he did what he did. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Question, how would you like to spend your entire evening with sick and demon-possessed people? Some of you are like, I did that last night. Oh, anyway. Um, 
I don't know why I say stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know why I say stuff like that. You know, I need to stick to my manuscript. You know what I mean? Good Lord. But look at what happens. Verse 33. The whole town gathered at the door. Everybody look up here. The whole town gathered at the door. Typical houses in first century Jerusalem, okay, in, 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 in Judea. They were at one or two rooms. The whole house was one or two rooms, okay? It's not three bedrooms here, kitchen. The whole entire house, one very big, one or two rooms. And the whole town sometimes could be three, four, five thousand people. So in this one tiny house, thousands of people from, from this town had gathered to hear Jesus. Why? Well, we know why. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is healing people. And he's getting reputation as a miracle worker, right? And at that time, if you were ridden with a sickness or a disease, it was done. You were done. There was no cure, no hope. And they're hearing, there's one chance I might be healed. There's one chance I might get well. I'm going to take advantage of it. So thousands of people. Jesus, verse 34. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let demons speak because they knew who he was. That's another sermon for another time, okay? Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Question, what had Jesus been doing all night? What had Jesus been doing all night? You know what? I, I would have slept in. I would have. I would. I would just been, and I would have been like, Father, you understand, right? It was a long night. And Jesus gets up, as was customary, goes to, uh, finds a solitary place before anybody else wakes up to be alone with God. Now, listen to this. Listen. Don't get hung up on that. He got up early in the morning, okay? I grew up in the Korean church where people took that literally and then added another dimension and said, so every morning at 5, 5.30, we're going to have morning prayers. And, we get up. and I just thought I stunk at being Christian because I just couldn't get myself to do it, right? And then I realized, I realized at some point, nobody wants to be around me at 5 in the morning, not even God, all right? So I'm just like, I'm okay with that. Uh, hey, can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about? Some of us, people shouldn't be around us at 5 in the morning, not even God, right? So I realized, no, the important thing is this. Jesus, the early in the morning was not just a legalistic, because what else do we find in the Gospels? Things like Jesus spent all night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Point is not morning all night. Point was he made it a priority to be alone with the Father. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and they found him. They exclaimed, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. Everybody, look up here. Translation, Jesus, there's still ministry to be done. Jesus, there still needs to be met. Jesus, there's still sick people that need to be healed. Jesus, there are a list of things on the to-do list that you haven't checked off on your phone yet. Activists in our church, please listen to me. If you prioritize needs of the people, if you prioritize the hurting, if you prioritize the sick, and if you prioritize all these other good things that are part of ministry, before your time with the Father, you will always struggle with intimacy. If you are constantly driven by the needs here, needs there, needs there, and you reason, after I take care of all of that, then I will get to being alone with the Father. You will always think that intimacy is for somebody else and never you. 
you know what? Jesus understood that I don't understand and some of us don't understand. This is what he said in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 14, 7. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. What Jesus understood was there will always be needy people. There will always be hurting people. You will never be in a position in life where those who are hurting, those who are needy, those who need you will never be in and around your life. And if you reason, when that's all done, then I will get to this, that day will never come because there will be never a day when needy, hurting people will not need you. Are you listening to me? The activist types among us If you do not prioritize and say, before anything else, time with the Father. He's going to be five, ten years, look back and go, what? We just sort of drifted. In verse 38, look what happens, you guys. Jesus replied, "Let, let us go somewhere else. Question, are there still hurting people in this town? Are there still needy people in this town? Are there still people who Jesus who need Jesus? Yes, they're filled. But Jesus is able to say no to people, and he could only say no to people because in his heart he had already said yes to something bigger. Because in his heart he had already determined. He said yes to something, someone bigger. He will never prioritize your life. By thinking you can say no, 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 no. You have to find one overriding thing to say yes to. And when you say yes to that, it will prioritize everything else in your life. See, if it was you and me, we're still stuck on the people in need. If it was you and me, at the sacrifice and cost of being with Jesus, we're still stuck on the people that need our help. We're still stuck on all of them. And yet Jesus, listen to this, as a result of spending time with the Father, this is huge, gains clarity about his mission. Not someone else's. About his call, not someone else. As a result of being alone with the Father, listen to this. He gets absolute crystal clarity about what he is to do, where he is to do it, and how he is to do it. So much so that he could look at people in need and go, I gotta go. And you know the thing is, I never get the sense in the Gospels that Jesus was with his disciples. He was like, Yo, I'm so busy right now. I never get this until you read the gospel. Jesus going, whoo, that was a crazy week. You never get the sense when you read the gospel. Jesus going like, how am I going to get all that stuff done next week in Bethsaida? You never get the sense that Jesus is internally struggling in the midst of all the demands. Why? He has a guiding north star and an anchor where he clearly knew what God was calling him to do, where he was calling him to do it, and how he was calling him to do it. And you can say, nope, 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 nope. Maybe there's like three of us in here who are going, busy? What's that? I'm not busy. I got all time in the world, man. This sermon is so like not what I need right now. My guess is the majority of us, this week you said things like, oh, things are so busy. Things are so hectic. How am I going to get all this stuff done? Life is so crazy. And if I were to ask you, listen to this, out of all those things, How many of them do you have crystal clarity that that is what God has called you to do, where God has called you to do it, and how he has called you to do it? Here's something that I deeply struggle with. 
And yet, fundamentally, if I were ever to wrap my brain and ultimately my life around it, <laughs> listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. You guys, listen to this. For we are God's workmanship. And the Greek word is poema or poem, God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Read the rest with me. Ready? Which God prepare in advance for us to do. Do you know what this verse is saying? This ain't where you're born is not an accident. Family you were, grew up in is not an accident. The environment you grew up in is an accident. All the events in your life are not accidents. The good thing, the bad, the fortunate things, the success, the failures, all those things are somehow woven by God, woven by God in such a way that there's only one you. You're a snowflake. You're like a fingerprint. There's only one you. And here's, check this out. God is at work and he's doing things in the world. And God goes, I have only one you. And I also have one mission planned for your life that I prepared before the foundation of the earth. And that mission can only be carried out by you and you only. There are people that only you can heal. There are demons that only you can cast out. There are people that only you can reach. It's not saying, I'm going to say yes to everything because they're all good things. The question is, what has God prepared in advance for me to do? Not him, not her, not them. What has God prepared me to do to fulfill his kingdom mission? Do you know that for your life? Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, said something that was just so offensive and yet convicting at the same time. Listen to what he said. He says, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It's essentially laziness. He's calling you and me lazy. I'm so busy. He goes, you're lazy. Why? It's doing the easy thing instead of the hard thing. It's filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. It's taking charge. How many of us are taking charge? Next, next thing. Busyness has nothing to do with activity, and spirituality is not the absence of activity. You either enter into what God is doing or you don't. A busy person is a lazy person because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. What God has prepared in advance for you to do. Just because our calendars are full doesn't mean that our lives are full. Busyness is not the sign of spiritual maturity. Busyness is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Busyness is the way we avoid God. How do you say? Can I give you an example? Some of us are busy because we can't say no. Can I preach Angela this morning? Some of us, are, our schedule are filled to the top because we can't say no. Let me ask you a question. Be honest. Why can't you say no? Why can't you say no? Well, because I want to help people. I almost swore. No! No! It's not true. You know it. I know it. It's got nothing to do with wanting to help people. The reason why we can't say no is because we want their affirmation. We want their approval. We don't want to disappoint them. That's why we can't say no. Come on. I've never quoted Mahatma Gandhi in this room, but I'm going today. 
Here's what Gandhi said. A no uttered from the deepest conviction is better than a yes merely uttered to please or worse, to avoid trouble. You know, the amazing thing about Gandhi, because you all know, like, unless you're like lived in a cave somewhere, you know how influential he was. You know, one thing we don't know, I, I read this biography actually from Arun Gandhi, one of his grandsons. I think it was fifth his grandson. Arun Gandhi grew up in South Africa. And he was beaten up really bad twice. One for being too black and one for being too white. And his parents decided, I'm going to send him to spend some time with grandpa. That's pretty cool. I get to go with grandpa. It's Gandhi himself, right? Here's what we said. He writes in his, he writes, for two years, Gandhi spent two hours every day with his grandson doing nothing but listening to his grandson. And his grandson reiterates stories of how presidents and diplomats and very important people wouldn't <laughs> clamor for his attention. Clam- and yet, something in him said, no, no, no. Priority. Busyness is a sign of something else. You know what else busyness is a sign of? Denial. You know why some of us are busy? Because we can't stand the pain that we're carrying. It numbs it. It numbs it. Some of us are busy because the pain of loneliness is so hard that I'd rather just be in relationship after relationship and fill my skin. Some of us, it's in denial of the fact that our parents have wounded us deeply and we're just angry at them. Some of us, it's because we're in denial about the fact that we're deathly afraid of failure. So we keep ourselves busy, 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 busy. I, I plead with you, if that's you today, if that's you today, you're sitting here, you can't even pay attention on Sunday mornings because your mind is thinking about Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, like your whole week, you know who you are. You got your to-do list. And if you're busy because you are in denial about real hard issues you need to deal with, I plead with you, I plead with you, don't go another week without asking God for the courage to say, I'm going to stop, God. And in community, I want to deal with this. For some of us that can't say no and schedules are packed because we can't say no and because ultimately at the end of the day, it's our affirmation, it's a desire, yearning to just be approved, that you would learn to hear the voice of the Heavenly Father. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, said this, the hard work of prayer, the real hard work of prayer is being silent enough to hear the voice of the one says good things about us. Who calls us out, beloved. Sarah, I love you for who you are. You don't have to perform for me. John, I love you. I died for you. You don't have to do anything. Gave you my righteousness. You're accepted in me. You know, to hear the voice of your heavenly Father. I said this the first week. For some of us, the greatest enemy to intimacy with Jesus is the fact that we're too busy working for Jesus and never taking time to develop this intimacy. One of the things I've had to do in my life, you know, is I literally have a group of people that I go to when I get speaking engagements. I'll be totally honest with you guys. Speaking engagements for me were about affirmation. They were about, oh, people, play. Oh, nonsense. But at the, in the foundation, fundamental, it was my insecurity. It's my deep insecurity. I won't be able to like me, affirmed, and they think I'm good at this. It was that. 
And I was driving myself ragged. So you know what I had to do? I had to get a group of people and go, here are the speaking engagements. I need you guys to pray with me. I don't want to just say yes to everything that's invited. What can I say yes to? Because that's where God is at work. What is God calling you to do? Do you even care? (laughs) Or is your posture, I'm just going to say yes to everything because you're all good. What is God calling you to do? Are you listening? Can you hear him? Some of us, can I just ask, look, you got decisions, you need stuff to do. Can I just try doing this? Try doing this. Try approaching your day or approaching your week by going, God, I want you to smack me upside the head and make it that clear that that's what you want me to do. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. What if we approached our lives and opportunity by saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How are you doing it? Smack me upside the head if you want me to be aligned with that. Almost done here. Look, a couple more passages throughout the Gospels. Luke 5.15. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and he healed all their sicknesses. In other words, there's more to be done. He's busier than ever. There are more expectations than ever on Jesus. More demands on his time than ever. But verse 16. But, notice the contrast. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Why? Because even in the midst of all of that, in order for him to do the will of the Father, he needed to know the will of the Father. In order to know the will of the Father, he needed to hear the will of the Father. And in order to hear the will of the Father, he needed to get in a place where he could listen. Because without listening, he can't hear the will of the Father. If he can't hear the will of the Father, how is he supposed to know what the will of the Father is? And if he doesn't know what the will of the Father is, how is he supposed to do the will of the Father? A little warning. If you take this seriously, if you take this seriously to carve out time, you know what God's going to start doing? He's done with me. God's going to start searching your heart. As the psalmist prays, search me and know me. He's going to start searching your heart, and then he's going to start surfacing things in your heart and your life that you don't want to deal with. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, yes. Matter of fact, that's why we go, I don't want that. I don't need that. So I ain't going to go. But when you do, when you, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's like a surgeon with a scalpel. It's amazing. The biggest changes in my life have not come because I was sitting where you are going, oh, my gosh, it was an incredible sermon. I'm going to go change. No, it wasn't reading books. It was in my room, quiet by myself, in a closet, with the word of God open and a posture that said, speak. And God began to kind of surface. Peter, you see that insecurity that's driving all of your dysfunction? Yeah. What are we going to do with that? Peter, you see that? You see that anger and the bitterness and hurt that's causing you to latch on to these unhealthy relationships? Yeah. Let's deal with that. Conversely, if you don't take time to do this, you're going to struggle with being critical and judgmental of everybody else's faults but your own. We're great at evaluating other people. We're not very good at evaluating ourselves. So here's the thing. God's sitting there going, hey, 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 hey. The insecurity, the fear, the anger, the lack of trust. Hey, 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 what are we going to do? Let's deal with that. Search me and know me. Search me and know me. One more passage. Luke 6, verse 12. 
One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the entire night praying to God. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. The context is Jesus is about to make the most important decision of his life. He's about to choose men that is going to carry the gospel to change the world. How does Jesus make the most important decision in his life? By what? Being alone with the Father. Can I ask you something? Some of you guys have major decisions to make. Why are you not going to God with it? Why are you not going to God with those major decisions in your life? I'll tell you why for some of us. Because we're afraid of what we might hear. Yes? We're afraid of what God might say. I have people come to me and go, I, I, I'm just not hearing from God. And I'm going, we might not be hearing from God because part of hearing from God is listening. And listening entails, listen, let me give you an example. When I'm not walking in the spirit, which is sometimes often, and I'm walking in my flesh, and I'm not where God wants me to be, when I'm arguing with my wife, here's what I do. I look like I'm listening. She's giving her arguments. But the whole time, what am I doing? What do you do? You what? You're thinking of the what? Counter argument, right? That you're going to just, boom, blast her with it. She'd be like, yeah, shut you up. Sitting there nodding. That's what I'm doing the whole time. Am I listening? Am I li- No. And here's the thing. We do that with God. Why do we go to God and go, God, I want to listen to you. And God's going, but your heart says, God, you could tell me what you think I ought to do, but those might be good suggestions. And if it's good enough, I'll take it. If not, I'll leave it. Why would God speak to someone whose posture is, my mind is made up. I just need you to bless it. Let me tell you something. If you want to hear from God, you're like, ah, oh, that's so loud. Try doing this. Try going to be for God and going, God, these decisions, the answer is yes, no matter what. The answer is yes. Regardless of how hard, how dangerous, how unsafe, God, the answer is yes. Speak. Do you know what Jesus understood? This is my last sort of attempt. Some of us are sitting there going, I don't have time for that, Peter. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I don't have time for that. Can I? I think Jesus was the most productive person in the history of the world. In three years, as a result of his ministry, three years, there's over two billion people that think he's God. So how are you going to sit there and go, I don't have time for it? Here's what Jesus understood. Here's what Jesus understood that I want us to get up, wrap our, wrap our brain around as we end today. John 5, 17. Listen to what he said. My father is always at work to this very day. Is that good news? Think about, think about what they're saying. My father is always at work to this day. Think about what God is saying. God is, God is already at work. God is on the move. God is, God is working him and her among them over there. God is, let me put it this way. God is productive. God is getting stuff done. What's our job? Here's what Jesus says. And I'm working. But how? The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he's his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Jesus' posture, his basic anchor was simple. It was what? God, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How are you doing it? Because you're already at work. In him, her, over there. What's my job? I just join you in that. I just align myself in that. We make it so hard. 
God, are you playing hide and seek with Will? No. God's saying, I'm already at work over there in him, in her, in that. I'm already at work. I'm already doing stuff, getting things done. And instead of going, I'm going to say yes to every good opportunity that comes, God says, take a moment to listen and to see what am I doing, where am I doing it, how am I doing it, and just join me in that. What if for the next three to six months, you and I committed to doing this? What if you and I said, instead of saying yes to all of these incredible, wonderful opportunities, we said, God, I want to begin the day and some point during the day have the posture that says, God, it's not about what I want to do. It's not about what, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How are you doing it? And get on board with that. And here's the thing. You may find yourself being more productive than ever. Do you know why? It's common sense. If God is already at work in him and getting stuff done and God says, join me in it. My productivity has nothing to do with that person. God is already at work. God is already at work. God is already at work. God says, just join me in it. Well, look at that. I'm doing things over there, Peter. We're changing lives. We're doing things. Join me. I'm calling you to join me in that work. What he is doing, where he is doing it, how he is doing it, and join God in that word. But you cannot and you will not do this unless your posture is one of I'm listening. Three very practical things. I told you it's going to be a practical sermon this morning. Three very practical things. One, replace I have to with I choose to. Everybody say this with me. Ready? Replace I have to with I choose to. One time I was at a conference, a pastoral conference. I was sitting down with five, six pastors, and we were all groaning, moaning, and complaining about how busy we were. You know? It was pathetic. It was pathetic. But there was this one pastor that I love and respect. He sat there. He looked at me. He goes, why are you complaining? I was like, what'd you say? So why are you complaining? I'm like, Inside, I'm going, you don't know me. Don't judge me. Like some of you are doing right now with me. And he said this. He goes, Peter, and a smile on his face. He goes, Peter, you don't have to do anything. You realize you're choosing to. You don't have to call that person back. No, you choose to. No, you don't have to get that project done before you spend time with God. No, you choose to. No, you don't, you don't have to respond to that. You choose to. One of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, says, he said, every act of the will is an act of self-limitation. It's an act of self-sacrifice. Analogy said, every time you choose one woman, and by that very act, you're saying no to all the others, so is with the decisions you make. Can I give you a challenge? Really practical. I really do. Really practical. This week, when you say it or you think I have to, replace it with I choose to. So, Here's what it's going to look like. Oh, so I choose to play video games instead of spending time with my family. <gasps> yeah. no. We, so I choose to watch ESPN Sports Center for three hours instead of spending time with my wife. So I choose to prioritize these things as non-negotiable. I don't have to. Your priority, something we choose. Secondly, deliberately neglect things in your life. Deliberately neglect things in your life. 
a famous world famous violinist performed at Carnegie Hall and afterwards a reporter approached her and said what's your secret to success how did you become such an incredible violinist this is what she said she said two words planned neglect to which the reporter was like huh he said this planned neglect this is rest of her uh, uh, rest of her uh, uh, interview. She says, when I was in music school, there were many things that demanded my time. When I went to my room after breakfast, I had to make my bed, I straightened the room, I dusted the floor, and did whatever else came to my attention. Then I would hurry to my violin practice. And she said, I found I wasn't getting better. I wasn't progressing as I thought. So she said, I deliberately chose to reverse things. She said, until my practice period was completed, I deliberately neglected everything else. And that program of planned neglect, I believe, accounts for my success. If you and I don't prioritize, somebody else will. If we don't prioritize, something else will. Third, enjoy your time, even if it's seemingly unproductive or quiet. Here's what I mean. How does it end with this? Um, how many of us, um, how many of us were taught about quiet times and devotionals growing up? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, for years, you know what I struggled with? For years, what I struggled with this was this whole dynamic of, especially when I, I, would, I would have long stretches where I wasn't spending regular time with God. I would put enormous pressure on myself because I would go to, I would go to my room and I look at the Bible and I would ask questions like, okay, what can I, what is God saying to me and how can I, how can I learn from this and what are the things I can gather from this and, and I would, and I just realized like, oh, wow, that's just, that's just the exercise in futility, right? And when someone was sent this, and it was just helpful, just like a small twist, but it was helpful. He said, you know, Peter, why do we approach it almost from like a consumeristic perspective? Like, what can I get from it? And he said, instead of approaching it that way, he said, and he drew this picture. He said, think of a mall. Think of a mom and a daughter walking in a mall. Think of a mom and daughter walking in a mall together. And what's really critical and important is that they're just together, being together, rather than getting stuff from. And maybe the real essence of this time that God invites us to is to be with. And not necessarily that we get stuff from it and do, but just with, with an attentiveness to listen to the voice of our Heavenly Father. See, we began this journey, Revelation 3.20, by saying that Jesus stands at the door and knocks and he goes, come on, open the door, and if you open it, I'll come in and eat with you and he with me. And I said from the very Sunday, after Sunday, I said, the thing that God wants us to do if you'd open the door of your heart is not come and give you a list of things to do and give you a mission statement. God says, I just want to be with you. What are we going to do, Jesus? I think we're just going to be together. That's it? We're just going to be together. And some of us at our concert are going, what, just going to be together? It's pointless. Like, what if? And then I got this. As I prayed about how to end this particular very practical sermon, I got this from Bethany over here who sent me this article. And I was just like, okay, Lord. It's written by a mom with lots of kids. The title of this blog is Come Weary. And she quotes Paul Miller in A Praying Life where she says, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. She says, come straight from your bed with your morning breath and your sweatpants. Come with your crazy hair and your unwashed face and last night's dishes still sitting out on the counter. Come as soon as the alarm goes off or after three or four smacks at the snooze button. Or maybe morning's not your thing. 
but you keep trying to muster yourself up to it because, well, once somebody told you that this was the best way, that morning is the best time, that you need to start your day right with God. I want to tell you that there's no best time. There's you, your particular individual heart, and there's God, his love, like a deep flowing river. And it doesn't matter when you step into the river. All that matters is that you do. Come with your mind, just scattered a thousand different places. Come with your insurmountable to-do list and don't feel a bit guilty when you keep drifting back to the day's demands. Does anybody relate? Can anybody relate? Like you pray, how many times you go? I just, she says, just notice that and then make your way back to the quiet. There will be many trips back and forth while you're here from worry to planning to prayer and then back around again. That's just a part of it. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you've heard a hundred sermons about that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed deep and long and his disciples fell asleep. You know that verse by heart where it says, hey, couldn't you watch with, watch, keep watch with me for an hour? And the one that says, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's what I think about all that. That was never meant to be a call to do better, to be better, to come perfect and focused and spiritually strong. I think Jesus is simply telling us the truth about ourselves, that we're weak, that we're weary and that it's okay, and that he's enough. Maybe all this time you've been trying to come perfect. You've been trying to come wide awake when you're exhausted. Maybe you've been trying to work up the faith when your heart is sunk deep in doubt. You don't have to hustle for approval here. Come wary. Come beloved. Come reluctantly or expectantly. Come half asleep or half alive or broken into 10,000 pieces. Stare blankly into the fluorescent sunlamp in the cold, dark morning and say nothing or say everything. Rant and rave and whine and cry and bear it all. Your whole fearful, jealous, angry heart. Both of these things are a kind of prayer and neither is better or more honest than the other. She says, let your swear monkey out. Say the truth you need to say, even if the words sound unholy, unacceptable. There's a time when the four-letter word is the right word. Amen to that. Because God can handle your impolite, your, your wildness, your temper tantrums, your tears. Come with the heart, stone cold in its silence. Come bitter, come distant. Read the Bible or don't. Write it out in a journal or don't. Read a bit of liturgy or feel yourself connected to a thousand other broken pieces of humanity all trying to figure it out or don't. There's no right way to come. There's only the honesty of showing up entirely yourself in the place you are now. Maybe you won't feel anything. Just the winter dark pressing in and the cold seeping in under the patio door and weary dread for the mundane task of another day, another week, another year. But come anyway. Come even if you're not one bit sure about this God business at all. Start here with these open arms, the ones that are welcoming, the weary. Start with the God who invites the imperfect, the mad at their kids, the pissed at their bosses, the one who sits in traffic feeling a rage she cannot understand, the one who can't stop crying, the one who's full to the brim with happiness. Start with Jesus who welcomes the overwhelmed, the underawed, the hopeful, the hopeless. Here's looking at you who don't have one scrap of it together and there's not a how-to or a best practices. Just him, just you, just the river. Just one word, come. The first step, really the only step. The one you keep taking every weary, heavy laden, joyous, hopeful, normal, average, dish-filled, noisy day of your life. Just come. I'll leave you with this quote as we pray this morning from 14th century unnamed monk. He said, there's no right way to come. 
There's only the honesty of showing up entirely yourself in the place you are now. And the next slide, please. You only need a tiny scrap of time to move toward God. Do you know what that means? Some of us are sitting here going, God, I could only do two, three minutes because I'm just tired. I'm just worn. And you know what God says? Scraps is all you got. How many of you have just been yearning for intimacy with God? You're sitting there going, God, not good enough, strong enough, awake enough, alert enough, been too long. And God just said, seriously, this morning's going, just come. Just come. Father, we come to you today. For some of us, God, this morning was hard because it's just a reminder, God, of ways in feel like we failed, ways in which we've fallen short, ways in which we just don't do enough, ways in which we just don't quite succeed at what our heart yearns for. For some of us, God, we desperately need to hear your voice this morning. We definitely hear need to your voice this morning instead of the voices, the deafening voices of our world that would have us believe, that would have us believe that our worth, our acceptance, our, our esteem, our value is found in performing and performing and performing and performing and doing more and doing more and achieving more and, and the endless deafening voices that shout to us so loud that we can't hear the voice of our beloved who says good things about us calls us your beloved speak God to the lives and hearts in here that just can't say no to those of us fearful of the deep painful things and dealing with it and living in denial for those of us, God, for whom we just don't feel quite good enough to come to you. Speak, Holy Spirit. Speak, Jesus. Jesus.